Welcome to the One God Report podcast. I'm really excited today to have as our guest, Mr. Forrest Moretti, author of a recently published book called Red Pill Gospel, which we want to talk more about in just a few minutes. Forrest and I have become acquainted. I think, Forrest, you and your wife saw a video testimony of my wife and I, and we got in touch after that. Yep, that's right. Forrest, before we talk about your new book, please tell us some more about yourself, where you're from, a bit about your family and your work, how you have arrived at the place where you are now in your faith walk with God. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Long time listener, first time caller. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm married. Uh, we have one son who's 16. We live in uh, North Carolina uh, on, the, on the coast here. We get all the hurricanes. And I have a, a strange background in that I went to Wake Forest and I majored in religion or theology, I suppose you might call it and pipe organ. Hmm. So uh, I actually went on a composition scholarship. I had been composing music uh, since I was a kid and uh, was headed toward the film industry to work as a film composer. That was my, my dream job. Mm-hmm. And uh, soon after college, I started working in the film industry and uh, worked on a bunch of movies and television shows and got a big break got to score a TV movie and uh, it's a long story, but uh, anyway, ended up working and doing a lot of animation and visual effects and other things got into technology and computer programming. And through a strange sequence of events, I actually started writing books uh, mainly about uh, medical history and almost you might say as a pharmaceutical whistleblower. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started doing a lot of research into the history of disease like uh, polio and other things that I, I consider man-made diseases. And anyway, I had a fairly popular YouTube and Facebook channel called My Incredible Opinion, where I sort of made videos about anything that interested me. Uh, but at the back of that story uh, that wasn't public was a um, a Christian story that was me and my wife sort of struggling to um, fit in at our local church and it was always it was always um, a difficult fit for us uh, we we like traditional music you know like I said I, I played the pipe organ and we we weren't huge fans of the lyrics of modern music and um, we had some theological squabbles along the way here and there. I mean, nothing dramatic, but we had um, most recently uh, become members of an Orthodox, Orthodox Presbyterian church, which is a reform uh, church and, and very, very reformed. If, if there's such a thing, uh, very strict, very uh, regimented. And, and we actually liked it. And, and more than anything, we liked the people there. Eventually, though, the, the doctrine became uh, problematic for us as we uh, did more and more research into it. And as you mentioned, as, as fate would have it, um, during the height of our struggles, I just happened across a video of you and Stephanie uh, talking about your um, exit uh, from the, uh, I guess it was MacArthur School, I can't remember what it's called, 
uh, when yeah. you were working and yeah. it really um it really just came at the right time as we were starting to uh, find our way through a lot of the doctrine that we'd had problems with. So fast forward a few months later, and, and I process my thoughts evidently through writing books, which is a strange uh, and brutal uh, technique of, of trying to understand what you think. But as you mentioned, I, I ended up uh, writing a book called Red Pill Gospel, and, and the subtitle is Christianity before it was ruined by Christians. Uh, it takes a little bit to stand out, and that, that title, that subtitle, is obviously a little provocative on purpose, trying to tweak people's interest a little bit. But the reality is, the book represents for me and my wife a very profound shift, uh, the most profound shift, I, I think nearly any Christian might undergo in their faith walk. And the book represents that. It's a, it's an explanation of where I think uh, Christianity has gone off the rails, uh, which unfortunately started soon after uh, Jesus ascended. Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't take long uh, before man-made doctrine started uh, entering the scene, and it's been getting more and more uh, perverted ever since. Mm -hmm. Forrest, before we get into the book, let me just mention, Forrest sort of went quickly over his own uh, writing, but he's written, I think, seven books on the pharmaceutical industry and, and especially how it relates to vaccinations. I think there will be some people interested in the books you've written in that area as okay. well. Forrest writes well. Uh, he, it's a smooth writing. It's, uh, the, the books are easy to read. I'll make sure that we have your website uh, posted in the show notes. It's Forrest Moretti, M-A, and then the word ready.com, ForrestMoretti.com. So yeah. now let's, let's talk about this book. The title is The Red Pill Gospel. So what, what does the title of the book mean? What, what is the red pill? Well, I try to write for the pedestrian, for the average reader. So uh, red pill for uh, a lot of people who may not have seen the movie The Matrix has some meaning within the common vernacular, which is from the movie, the hero of the story is offered two choices. He can take the blue pill, which will keep him happy, keep him ignorant of all of this simulated reality that he lives within, or he can take the red pill, and the red pill will remove his ignorance and let him see the world for what it really is. Mm -hmm. And the symbolism of this choice has become very poignant over the last few years as what were once thought to be conspiracy theories are, are starting to be having a, a second look taken at them. And for instance, uh, one of the books uh, I wrote is called The Moth and the Iron Lung, and it's a biography of polio. And the story of polio, we all grew up hearing, 
is actually very far from the truth about the disease. We heard a prepackaged story that had a hero and had an enemy and had a neat and tidy ending where the hero rides off into the sunset, um, never to be bothered again. And like a lot of things, as you get older, you realize uh, some of these stories you were told as children weren't uh, quite as neat and tidy as you thought they were. So Red Pill Gospel is in the spirit of people starting to question things. And at coming up on, you could argue, depending on your timing, the 2000 year anniversary of our faith as we approach that, I think it's time for people to reconsider the faith that they were taught as children, that they, they've heard from the pulpit every Sunday as adults. I believe it, it's truly much different than what we've been taught. Hmm. And Red Pill Gospel isn't really a theological book that is trying to convince you of uh, one or two specific things. It's more of an exploration into were you told the truth about Christianity? Have you been sold a lie that uh, has been built up over hundreds and hundreds of years of power plays and distortions and man-made doctrine? Mm -hmm. And it's an attempt to strip all that away and and historically understand um, how did those things get added on? You know, why were why were these sorts of things added on? That they, they didn't just happen by accident. I mean, they all have a reason, and we can talk about some of them, uh, but they all have a reason they were added. And, and I'm trying to understand, as the historian in me is trying to understand, what was the surrounding culture that caused this or that particular distortion to be added? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, maybe I could say that in a lot of ways, it's an effort to step outside of one's own cultural understandings and influences and take a look, an objective look at what mm-hmm. a person really believes. The obvious ones, of course, are always the Nazis. Could a, could a German person have understood that they were in the wrong about their Nazi philosophy, their attitude mm-hmm. to the Jews and so forth? What, what were the things that carried that whole culture along? How difficult would it have been for somebody to realize, hey, this is wrong? It wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. And I think in some ways you're kind of doing the same thing here with traditional Christianity. Let me ask you this. So you start the book off by talking about the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, for a lot of people who've who've never uh, really considered the specifics of their faith, they have no idea that the Trinity was once considered a very controversial subject. I mean, people died over this. And there's a reason it was controversial. You know, to to the modern listener or reader, it doesn't seem like why, you know, why would that be so controversial? But for someone who's never really inspected the, the particulars of their faith, I think the Trinity offers an easy way for them to think about something that they, they may not feel really strongly about. You know, mm-hmm. it's something most people grew up with, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You hear it at the end of every prayer and half the hymns we sing. And 
beyond that, it's like, what's the big deal? Okay, so somebody's telling me that the Trinity is not actually biblical, but was sort of added on after the fact. And, and I see that Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Ghost are mentioned together sometimes. So it's sort of an innocent, like, foot in the door to me for the average Christian who's never really considered it. Mm-hmm. Now, for someone at your station in life <laughs> where you've taught this stuff, you, you're so familiar with the scriptures, you can take it more seriously and see the ramifications of, of what happens when you let something into the doctrine or into the scripture that's not actually there. You can see the, you know, if you extrapolate that tiny mistake out, things start to go south pretty quickly. Yeah, especially when we're talking about who God is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, after all, if you, I mentioned this in the book, but if you go to any church, what we believe website, they're either going to mention scripture, infallibility of scripture as the number one thing, or they'll mention Trinity, uh, mm. the nature of God. This is the first thing that anyone uh, mentions in their belief statement uh, or a statement of faith. And as anyone who studied this knows, it is the, when, when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment, he talked about this thing, you know, mm. now you and I, or if we differed on opinion, and I feel we're pretty much in agreement, uh, we could argue on what he meant when he said, the Lord, your God is one. Regardless, it's clear that this was important to Jesus because it was the first thing he mentioned as mm-hmm. the most important thing. Yeah. I think, you're right, Forrest, that a Bible-believing Christian, I think deep in their heart, they do have some uncertainties about the Trinity because it's not something that's spelled out plainly in the Bible. You can't open up in the book of Romans and have Paul describe three persons in one Godhood mm-hmm. essence or something like that. You kind of, And I think you use this phrase, it's a doctrine of inference. You sort of have to connect the dots. You take a verse here and you say, well, because of this, this has to be that. You have to infer. It's not something that Moses revealed, God revealed to Moses and Moses spelled out for us on Mount Sinai. Here, look at God is actually three persons in one. On the contrary, everything about God is that he's one person. So it is something I think you're right. A thinking Christian, and I think that's kind of who we're really talking about, is a person that has some respect for the scriptures. They know that the Trinity is not there. You've got to almost in this end say, well, it's just a mystery, even though, yeah. even though it's not really described. Well, I've got to take from this verse something that says that Jesus is God, or this verse something else, put it all together, and, you know, that makes a Trinity. But, wow, you know, for Bible-believing people, that's a little uncomfortable. Yes, <laughs> I have a friend, a dear friend of mine, who I have the utmost respect for. He is a very staunch Reformed Calvinist, and and he mentioned to me about the Trinity. He said, "Yeah, I'm 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 not going to sit here and argue that the Trinity is in the Bible, but it is it's there if you look for it." Mm. And so my my question is, who told you to look for it? Like, how did you know to look for it? And that's the real problem is the reason 
we look for it is because we were told to look for it. Not by God, not by the Holy Spirit. It's certainly, the scripture certainly, from my reading, doesn't imply that uh, there is some multi-personed component of God that is sitting there waiting to be discovered if we could only tease it out mm. of enough scripture. Mm. But the, the real problem to me with the Trinity, and I, I sort of bookend uh, Red Pill Gospel with this and circle back, it's what you mentioned, and it's the mystery. This is the problem with Trinity and many of these other doctrines, but the Trinity is the hallmark mystery. And my take on the revelation of God is that it is the mystery revealed. This is the Bible. This is the point of God interacting with humans is the mysteries have been revealed and God is letting us know his story. He's letting us know what he expects of us. He's letting us know how we may uh, be saved. He's letting us know that he loves us, like all these things. Mm -hmm. And what does the Trinity do? It surrounds it in mystery. It puts it back into the, the mist and the cloud and the sky and takes what God attempted to do, which was reveal the mystery to us, make it clear the plan for mankind and put it back on the upper shelf where only extremely intelligent schooled professionals can explain it to you. Mm -hmm. And you do that with the Trinity. You have to. And many other of these doctrines end up being explained away by saying they're mysteries that we just can't understand. And to me, as a believer, I find that extremely offensive that God went to such great pains to reveal himself to us, the, the beautiful story of the gospel, and it's been hidden away by man. And, and to what end? You know, what is gained by that other than pride, feeding people's pride, that they understand this and you don't? Hmm. Well, you make me think, Forrest, of John one eighteen, where it says, no one has seen God, the unique one, who is now at the right hand of the Father. He has explained him. And Jesus certainly is not one that explained God as a three-person being. You know, there's one other thing that you kind of mentioned is, and you talk about in your book, and that is gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. Go into that a little bit, if you would, please. Yeah, that's another, you see it in cults all the time. If you've studied any cults, it's always uh, focuses around certain people who have knowledge that other people don't. And the only way you can gain that knowledge is by attending their seminars, by paying them money, by becoming a member of their cult, etc. And gatekeepers is essentially stoking people's pride by saying, I have special revelation that you don't. And if you listen to me, I, I will try to explain it to you. I can't guarantee you that you can understand it because it is, after all, not easily understood by the average person. But me, who went to school, I went to Hogwarts, you know, wizard school, and got all my theology degrees. Uh, no offense to uh, the theologians who listen well, to your show. Yeah, but you're <laughs> right. They, they can't, Trinitarian scholars can't explain the Trinity either. That's why we're talking about it right now, because 
nobody has been able to explain it, and that's why they resort to mystery. Go ahead. Keep it's going. For the, so the gatekeeper derives great pleasure from insinuating an understanding of it when they themselves only have the gift of flowery language to hide the fact that they themselves don't understand it. Mm. So a, a gatekeeper is yet another layer. It is the veil that was torn being sewn back up. It is putting a division between man and God that if Jesus's death on the cross was anything, it was that to me. It was the veil was torn. We no longer have the separation. We are free to access God directly. We don't need priests anymore. And what has man done with the Trinity? They've sewn that veil back up and said, well, actually, you may because there's some mystery here and I'm not sure you'll be able to understand it. Mm -hmm. So let me help you. Yeah, we have the one priest, Jesus, the Messiah, who died and was raised from the dead and brought to God's side. Amen. Let me ask you another question for us. A, a good portion of your book discusses Calvinism and the Reformed movement. Could you briefly describe Calvinism and the Reformed movement and <laughs> what's your beef with them? Well, it was, I'll say this, many of my dear Christian friends are Calvinists, are Reformed. There's something... I don't know if there's a particular type of person that is attracted to the Calvinist doctrine or the Reformed faith, but for whatever reason, these people are are dear to me. I love these people. They're 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 my some of my best friends. And you can imagine writing a book that goes to great pains to reveal reform faith for the falsehood that it is, it was very difficult for me because I, I knew that it might hurt some of these people should they read it. But to me, Calvinism and the reform faith, which I, I sort of use them interchangeably, and, and I realize there, there's some subtle nuance between what they actually are, but I, I'm for purposes of One God Report podcast, I'm just going to use them interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, they represent the ultimate distortion of the Christian faith to me. What started with a Trinitarian God, you know, back in, you know, you could say the 300s, maybe the 200s, if you you really work hard to extrapolate something there, but, you know, around 300s, we started seeing some Trinitarian beliefs graft themselves into Christianity. And Mm -hmm. over the course of the last, you know, 1600 years, 1700 years, I believe that uh, we've gone through several iterations of Christianity and Calvinism and the Reformed faith to me represent the ultimate distortion. They are the furthest away from the true Christian faith as Jesus lived and taught it. And that's difficult for me to say that knowing uh, that it hurts people to hear that because there are a lot of Christians who for Calvinism is very dear to them. You know, it, it means everything to them. And I am concerned that uh, in America, let's say, which is where we live currently, the reformed faith 
and, and through it Calvinism are growing. And, and the reason I believe that is we live in sort of a post-Christian culture, some, some would say, where uh, you know, Christianity is not the lens through which you know, the majority of political decisions are made. It's not the lens through which the majority of news reports are written and broadcast, whereas it used to be that. So in the post-Christian culture, I think there is a natural human endeavor for rules, for structure, for explanations of things. And Calvinism tries very hard to explain a lot of things very specifically. And I think that combined with the mystery component, Calvinism is so obtuse to suppose the God of the Bible purposefully chooses, according to his good pleasure, I'm quoting Calvin or the Westminster Confession of Faith here, to suppose that God chooses, according to his good pleasure, the majority of the world for the eternal hellfire is such a complete inversion of the biblical picture that is painted of God that I can't accept it any other way that it is a post-Christian, mystery-driven, prestige-driven, pride-driven set of doctrine that somehow feed the egos of the Christians who accept it. That's a real mouthful there. Mm -hmm. But well, I can't explain it any other way. Mm -hmm. So Calvin, he's a second-generation reformer, is he not, in Switzerland, kind of following after Luther. And is he not just carrying on a good deal of what the Catholic Church has taught for years and years, maybe even going back to people like Augustine that would believe in something like a eternal conscious torment for those that have not been chosen by God? Yeah, I, I think you raise a good point, which is, is calling it Calvinism really fair to, to those who believe it? And that, uh, you know, some would even say Augustine was, the, you know, that, that's where it really, this stuff started to really get fleshed out. And then, of course, I interesting, you know how brothers fight? I don't know if you have any siblings. but I you do. Know, mm -hmm. There's no, you, you, you never fight with a stranger on the street as fiercely as you fight with your own brother. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, the cops get called for domestic violence. And because of that, the fact that uh, Calvinists are quick to loathe their Catholic brothers uh, makes me convinced how similar they are. There's a lot of infighting there. And in the whole scheme of things, they're very subtle distinctions between them. But yeah, they are very similar. You could definitely argue Calvinism is an extrapolation of Catholicism which takes eternal suffering in hell, which takes infant baptism, you know, various doctrines and, and, and takes them to their, I, I won't say logical extreme, I'll, take, I'll say takes them to their irrational extreme, if that's even possible. Okay. And so I, I talk about it a lot because one, it, it's growing. I think it's, it's an inevitable response to a chasm that's been left 
by poor teaching in the church and they're mm-hmm. filling it. Now, I, I don't think they're correct. I think it's a, a horrific doctrine, but they are serving a need within the church and uh, people are latching onto it. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I, I felt compelled to try and, you know, give it a heave to say, look, you may want to reconsider this. Uh, mm. there, there are some issues with this that you, you may not have thought through. Yeah. And I think a lot of good meaning Christians, even though they may not know the specifics of Calvinism, probably believe a lot of Calvinistic type teachings, like the one we mentioned, uh, the eternal conscious torment of an immortal soul, the God they're presenting delights to eternally consciously torment somebody. Uh, when you can take a scripture verse here and there from the book of Revelation, but to do that, you, you ignore the context of those verses and you ignore so many other scriptures that simply say that the wages of sin is death, that the uh, way to life is narrow mm-hmm. and hard, and the way to, to uh, destruction is wide and easy. So many scriptures have to be ignored to hold on to that teaching. Well, I'll just say, Forrest, I, I think your book, the Red Pill Gospel, by the way, it, it is available on Amazon and Forces webpage. But I, I think for One God Believers, it's a good book to give to Christians that haven't really thought about the idea that there could be one God, that Jesus is a human being. It's an easy read. As people listening, I think you can see Forces is a good communicator. It's not a formidable book. It's around, let's see, I'm looking at about 180 pages. Nice size paperback book. I encourage people to check it out as a way to get friends and family to think about who God and Jesus are. I'm happy to see a guy like Forrest. You're an outgoing guy. And I think the one God faith is going to be heard more and more by people with the internet. Now we need more people like you that can explain this and, and present it with confidence. Yeah, I appreciate it. Like you said, the the book is, meant to be easy to read and I'll say inoffensive to give to someone. It's meant to be a tool to open the door to a bigger conversation. You know, I'm not a theologian. I don't have the formal training, but I do try to explain things simply with metaphor and and without a ton of cross-referenced um, material that requires flipping between pages. It, it's meant to be an intro, a foot in the door. And I think that this offers the beautiful, the glorious, the wonderful story of the gospel in such a way that this is the truth people are searching for. I think if we can peel back all of these layers of man-made doctrine as we approach the 2000th anniversary of our faith, I think the the truth the beautiful story of the gospel it's like most people have never seen it they've never seen it for for the beautiful thing that it is and it's my hope that this book and your work and other people's work uh, begins to shine a light on that truth amen you know one of the things i'll just mention forrest and i think some people will, will be interested in this it's only a dream and discussion force. And I have been talking and I've heard other people uh, talk about this too. 
the idea of a community in which like-minded people could live, looking for the land, being mm. able to develop it, build on it, invite people to participate. When I lived in Israel, I lived in a small community, and I saw many of the benefits of that community, for, especially for children, for families. Mm. So it's, it's very attractive. Forrest mentioned it to me, and it, to me it's very attractive. And I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow or next week kind of thing, but we are thinking about it. And in the climate of today's culture and political goings-on, I would imagine that an idea like this would sound very attractive to one God believers. So, Forrest, in the end of your book, you actually put in a address to keep in touch if you're interested in that. People can yeah, do that. I, I have a URL, redpillgospel.org, uh, which I believe currently forwards to my personal website, which uh, is Forrest Moretti, Forrest with two R's, forrestmoretti.com. Uh, but yeah, it, this is a conversation a lot of people of faith, Christians are having right now. My wife and I call it Amish 2.0. You know, the Anabaptists got out of Europe and, and came here three, 400 years ago because they were being drowned and killed because they believed in believer's baptism and they were being killed for it. And uh, we don't have a... a quite the journey. Uh, uh, we don't have another continent that we can go to. But there is this sense uh, with all the political strife that's going on, the Christian persecution that's happening, there is a sense that uh, geographical clustering may be necessary at some point. And uh, I certainly, it's very uncommon to talk to any believer and have it not come up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it's definitely just so that your listeners know, it, it's something I, I actually, I have a, a series of videos I'm working on now where I make a case for it. And they'll be able to find it on my website. I'll link to it. Mm. But it's definitely not something that I ever thought I would consider in my lifetime. But yet here we are. Yeah, and even outside of the idea of persecution, I don't feel persecuted, right? For my faith, I live in a subdivision here in north of Nashville. I don't feel persecuted, but I do feel different cultural pressures. Mm. Now, my kids are basically grown, but I still have a 16-year-old and an 11-year-old. Mm. And even for the two years that I've lived now in the States with my kids, there are challenges that I feel... I wouldn't have in a community of families of like-minded believers. Interesting. So I'm pretty much ready. <laughs> well, yep. it's, it's, uh, it's coming. Unfortunately, I, I, I don't, I, I think it's inevitable that there is some sort of, like I call it geographical clustering of, mm. of believers. I, I don't, I'll try to end on a positive note and say I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yes. It's, it's troubling times we live in. We, we need to be in prayer for revival, repentance in our country, obviously. But I also accept the reality that they, that may not happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and we so. can end on a real positive note and that we're looking forward to the kingdom of God. Amen. Uh, like nothing else. <laughs> and in fact, uh, th that has been the, the biggest shift in my Christian faith is this renewed 
understanding and expectation and joy in, in yearning for that kingdom. Amen. Um, this is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yishma'u. The humble will hear and rejoice.